Well, good morning again. I don't think I introduced myself. If I don't know you, my name is Jake Reefer. I'm the youth director here at Spring Run. Um, And so if you're either new in person or new online, thanks for being here. Um, And we're jumping back into our series this morning that we're calling One Another, the Movement of Biblical Community. And the idea behind the series is that, you know, it's pretty well established world over that you can't just be a person alone that people need other people. You can't live in isolation. You need community. Um, You need to be around other people. That's pretty accepted world over, religious or not. But um, that's not to say what kind of community one should be a part of. It doesn't tell you what kind of community you should hope for. It doesn't tell you at all what the Bible has to say about community. And so the idea behind this series is what would a community that was bought in on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what would that community look like? How would they operate? What would motivate them? Um, how would they treat each other? How would they treat people outside of the community? How would they talk to one another, serve one another? So that's the idea behind this, this series. And this morning we're coming to a passage at the end of Galatians 5 that says, do not provoke one another or envy one another. And um, We're going to kind of get to that at the end. I think that's kind of a a litmus test at the end of a longer thing that Paul is saying um, all throughout Galatians 5. And we're going to see that Paul is saying that we often set ourselves, we tend to really set ourselves as lords over our own life because we believe that we can justify ourselves. We believe that we are responsible for our righteousness and our justification. So we set ourselves as lord over our life. But what he's going to say is that if you are in Christ, you are actually free. You're truly free. You're not sort of free. You're really free. You're not free some of the time. You are absolutely free if you are in Christ. And specifically that if Christ is Lord of your life, you are free from the power of sin. You are free for the law of love, and you are free by the Spirit. So those are my three points, is that you are free from the law of sin. You're free for the law of love, and you are free by the Spirit of God. So let me read our passage, and we will get into it today. Starting in Galatians 5, verse 1, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And skipping down to verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. For the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. 
Lord God, I ask that you would bless the teaching of your word this morning. Would truth be remembered, and what is not true, would it be quickly forgotten? And uh, we ask that you bless our time together this morning. Amen. So, verse 1, Paul says, Stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And this is the jumping off point. This is the basis of what Paul is trying to say. It starts here. That life without Christ is slavery. It's slavery. It is, it is like being owned by somebody else. Not being your own person. And that specifically it's slavery to a law. Now, and, and this is actually true for non-religious people as well as religious people. Everybody lives under a law. I'll start with non-religious people. Most people think that if, if you don't believe in a God, there's no expectations or requirements of you. That, that you don't have to live up to any kind of standard. It's religious people who heap on expectations and requirements onto themselves. You know, don't steal, don't cheat on your spouse, give your money away to the poor, serve the poor, etc. But it's, it's, it's secular people. They just live however you want. Like, whatever sounds good, whatever feels good in the moment, that's what I live by. I don't, if I want to give my money away, I do. If I don't, I don't. I get to do whatever I want to do. But in reality, all people live under a law. You know, I've never met an atheist or an agnostic who actually takes their belief all the way to the logical conclusion, which is that nothing matters. I've never met anyone who actually believed that nothing matters, that we're just accidents, that there's no meaning to life, that, you know, murdering someone is just as good as giving all of your money away. Nobody actually lives like that because uh, you would just fall into a deep pit of despair. Um, and, and so everybody value something. Everyone says life is for something. Everyone has to live for something. And when you do that, when you value something and you say, I'm going to worship that, you set up laws and you set up practices that orient you towards that thing, towards that life. And so by doing so, you have made for yourself a law. I'll give you an example, and I could do this with a bunch of different things. Um, But one of the laws that our culture or society generally agrees on today is that um, if you have been mistreated by somebody, especially by somebody who is more powerful or more privileged than you, you deserve justice. That You deserve a chance to hold up your human rights and say, hey, you are not more valuable than me just because you are powered or privileged, but I, have, I, I, I am valuable. I deserve justice. And, and, and that's a good thing, by the way, that our, our society doesn't really know where they got that from. That's really a post-Christian idea. Um, but, and, and it often gets misused, but we should be grateful that we live in a society that does value justice, that does value human rights. It would be a dark, dark world to live in a place that did not value that. But that's kind of a side. Um, but that is a law. You know, that sounds like just maybe if you're a secular person, that just sounds like something that everybody believes, right? But, but in reality, it's, it's not. Um, that is a law. Because what you're saying is in order to be a good human, in order to make the world a better place... You have to adhere to a law of social justice. You need to adhere to these rules that you have set up for yourself. And so if you're a non-religious person, you are actually in the same place as a religious person. That, um, that how do you know if you've done enough? What if you don't help someone when you should have? What if you don't help someone as much as you could have? What if you're part of an injustice, either individually and personally or systemically or communally, and you're somehow a part of a group that does some injustice? What do you do then? How do you know if you have measured up? Because you can't meet it perfectly. That's pretty obvious. Nobody does everything that they should. And so how do you know if you will be accepted? How do you know if you are a good person and not a bad person? How do you know if you've met the standard? 
And Romans 2.14 actually says this pretty directly, where Paul says that uh, Gentiles or non-religious people have become a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, even though they don't have the Jewish law, they have become a law to themselves, and even though they've made that law, they still can't live up to it. So that's for non-religious people, but religious people, like most of us, I would imagine, we also live under law. I would argue that every faith besides Christianity is a law-based faith, um, that similar to non-religious people in the West, all religions make a claim that, hey, something is wrong with the world. <laughs> Something's wrong with the world and it needs to be fixed, and you're a part of that. And so it gives you, all, all faiths beside Christianity, they give you a list of things to attain to, to be, to do. And they say that you will be judged by God or maybe by the universe um, for either meeting those standards or not meeting those standards. And that ultimately religious people are left wondering the same thing as non-religious people is, have I done enough? Have I done enough? I mean, if you've tried, has anyone tried to read through the Bible and you hit Leviticus and you go, whoa, okay. That's because there's a whole bunch of rules and laws in there. And you read through this, you're like, how could I possibly do this? How could anybody possibly do this? And the answer is that they couldn't. And so if you can't meet it perfectly, you can only meet it partially, how do you know that it's enough? How do you know that you've done enough? Um, Ultimately, you're going to be wondering, am I justified in the eyes of God? And this is exactly where Paul comes in and says, this is what makes Christianity Christianity unique and beautiful. Which is verse 2, he says, look, I'll be saying this super definitively. He's saying, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And then then in verse 6, we didn't read this earlier. But for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Circumcision is really shorthand here for following the law. If, If he's saying, whether you follow the law or don't follow the law, it doesn't do you any good. It doesn't do you any good in your justification, but only faith working through love. He says, in order to come to Christ, you do not need to follow one bit of the law, not even one of the most important pieces of the law, to come to Christ. You just come to Christ. The only thing that you have to do is declare that you cannot meet the requirements of the law and come and cling to Christ. Because in Christ, you have met the requirements. This is the Christian claim, that in Christ, you have met the requirements of the law, but not because you've met the requirements of the law, but because somebody else has met the requirements of the law. And we, we have to get our minds around this, that if you are in Christ, you must stop judging the quality of your faith on your good works or your adherence to biblical mandates. The quality of your faith is determined by the degree to which you cling to Christ. The quality of your faith has nothing to do with your own works, or your adherence to the Bible. It's all about how tightly you cling to Christ. Two weeks ago, I was taking a a seminary class in D.C., um, and my professor came back one day after lunch um, with a guest, and I I had not heard of him before, but his name was Andrew Brunson. And some of you know who Andrew Brunson is. I had never heard of him, but he was a pastor in Turkey for over 20 years, I believe. Um, And a few years ago, he was arrested by the Turkish government. They said he was a terrorist or that he was helping terrorists. He wasn't. They knew that. He knew that. But they arrested him because they wanted to intimidate the church. And so he was arrested in Turkey, and he was kept there for two years. He was in prison for two years for nothing. Um, And a couple years ago, he was released, and he came back to the U.S. He talked a lot about several things to us, but um, one of the things that jumped out to me was he talked with our class about a time before he had been arrested where he struggled immensely with pride. 
He had been in Turkey doing good work, and he felt that, hey, I deserve, uh, I deserve a bigger church. I deserve more following. I deserve more acknowledgement. Um, and that, uh, but he never got that. He never got that acknowledgement. He never got that success. He never got this massive church. And, but what he found was that after he was released, he came back to the U.S., and he was somewhat famous. He, he, his story, had, his news, he had been a big news story, both when he was captured and when he was released. And you can find, he's, there's pictures of it. He, he, well, he became very famous, and he started being taken to all these different places. He started going places he never would have. There's pictures of him in the White House with President Trump. These places that he's like, oh my gosh, I never would have thought that I could have come to somewhere like this. But he said that after his, because of his experience in prison... He was able to go into these important places, places that would have fed his ego and fed his pride. He was able to go into these places and say, genuinely believing it, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. I don't deserve to be here. I don't deserve to be in this place. That is freedom. That is freedom from the law. Once you realize that where you belong is in a sewer drain for the rest of eternity, once you actually believe that, once you know that, you no longer have to live up to a standard because you know you can't meet it. That's freedom from the law. I don't belong here. I'm not supposed to be here. That's freedom. And so do you really believe that your right standing before God comes from the sacrifice of Christ? Or do you actually believe that your right standing comes from some of the good things you do at church, some of the things you good, do, good things you do to your friends and your neighbors and your community? Do you believe it that it is Christ who justifies you, or do you believe that it is your good theology that justifies you? So, this is really good news. This is excellent, excellent news. You are valuable not because of your accomplishments or your drive or your success, but because of the accomplishments of another. Um, but it can leave you kind of wondering, like, what now? Like, where do we go from here? Um, like, I'm free from the law but I'm not really free. What, what, what do I do with the rest of my life? Do I just kind of like live it up till I die? I mean, this is kind of like, um, I, I find that sometimes people have a real good theology of the crucifixion, but very little theology of the resurrection. And so I get that my sins are paid for, but I don't really know what to do now. And so there's something similar in that, but Paul's ahead of us, and he says, because in verses, uh, in verses 13 and 14, it's kind of a bewildering instruction if, if you've been paying attention. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, Got it. We just heard that. Not uh, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, okay, makes sense, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. So he's just been going on and on and on about how in freedom, that in Christ you are free. You're actually really free. You're free from the need to meet any expectation. And then he turns around and he says, use your freedom as an opportunity to serve one another. What I mean is, love your neighbor as yourself. By the way, that's the whole law. Use your freedom as an opportunity to follow the law. And if it might be like, oh my gosh, this sounds like a contradiction, but he's not contradicting himself. He's saying you have been freed from the law so that you can be free for the law. So I, I think Charles Spurgeon is uh, helpful with this. He says, What is God's law now? It's not above a Christian. It is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod and terror over Christians and say, If you sin, you'll be punished with it. It is not so. The law is under a Christian. It is for him to walk on, to be his guide, his rule, his pattern. We are not under the law, but under grace. Law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us. I wish I could write like that. That is amazing. Law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us. 
nor the spirit which actuates us. The law is good and excellent if it keeps its place. So what does that mean? It means that we're not governed or driven by the law. We're not governed and driven by our need to meet a standard. But we are governed and driven by the good news of Jesus Christ, that someone else has met the standard of the law. And the law becomes then something that serves us rather than we who serve it. And this is true because if you think about it, without Christ, every good thing you do is actually selfish. Every good thing you do outside of Christ is is selfish. And in Mark 12, I think this illustrates this well. In Mark 12, we get this story of Jesus and the disciples hanging out, watching people put money into the offering basket. That'd be kind of an interesting thing to do, I think. That'd be some good people watching. And so they see all these people coming by, and a bunch of rich people, we mostly, most of us know this story, put a, rich people put a lot of money in the basket. And then this woman comes by, this poor widow, and she puts two small copper coins in. And Jesus says that she's put in more money than everybody else. Now, if you super literally minded, you're thinking, uh, no, she didn't. But he's not talking about that. He's not talking about the amount of money. And money is a, is a tricky thing, right? I think we all know this. Money is tricky because it, it gets at your heart. It tells you what your, what, what your heart values. You spend money on the things that you find value in. I mean, those who hoard money and save it and never give it away, they find comfort and security. People who spend all their money on the newest thing, on a new car, a new iPhone, they find comfort in having the newest thing. And, and things. And so these rich people are putting money in the offering basket because they, they could, but also because they wanted to be sure that they were doing enough for God, that they were putting enough money in. They, they, they wanted to be accepted because of the value of their offering, the value of the thing that they were putting in. That's what was justifying them. But this poor widow comes, and she gives all that she has because she knows that it is not actually about the value of the item that she's putting in, but it is because of the value of her heart. Her heart is, is pointed towards Christ. That, that it's not the value of her money that justifies her, but it is God who justifies her. And so by putting money in, she is just acting out of love. That we place value, we, we should place value not in our adherence to the law, but in the God who provides for us. As Christians, we should follow the law, law not because it justifies us or makes us righteous. It can't, it doesn't. How could, how, could doing, how could following the law, if you're really in Christ, following the law does you nothing. It, it, it gains you nothing. It is only a way to act in deep love for the one who has justified you. And so, uh, Spring Run, let, let's think about ourselves. Think about our service, both inside and outside of the church. Do you serve or work because you believe your faith requires it, that you need it? Or are you living under, that if you are, you're, you're living under the law. Or do you serve and work because you're living in a pattern of love? Are you under the law and working to meet the standard because you believe secretly that what you do is what justifies you? Or are you working free from that, free from the expectation, knowing that my good works do me no good, I'm just acting out of love for the one who has bought me everything? And that is the good news. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, that you are free not because of your hard work, but because of the work of another. And that in that freedom, because of that work, you're now free to follow God's law out of love, out of gratitude, and not out of fear, that it's not this rod hanging over you to punish you. But you might be wondering, how do you make that transition? How do you transition from being under the law to under Christ? And Paul says it's the Spirit. It's the Spirit. This passage is a really famous one, the fruit of the Spirit. Parents will read that to your kids, right, and say, these are some good things to be, right? Patience, you know, um, 
And that's not bad. It would be, you know, it'd be great to live in a society where people said these are good, these are good attributes to attain to. But if that's all that the fruit of the Spirit is, we're, we're missing the point. Um, and there's two things here. There's the Spirit and the fruit. The Spirit that begets the fruit, the fruit that comes from the Spirit. So let's start with the Spirit. What is the Spirit? And I won't take us to read it, but in Ezekiel 37, another really famous passage uh, from the Old Testament. If you haven't read Ezekiel 37 recently, go read Ezekiel 37. It's Ezekiel's vision of the valley of the dry bones. Ezekiel has this vision where he's brought to a valley by God, and there are these very dry bones there, meaning that they're very dead bones. And um, God says, you know, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, you tell me, God. And... um, uh, so God says prophesy over the bones and so he does and we have this incredible picture of the bones coming together and making a skeleton and then sinews tying the bones together and then flesh coming onto the, the skeletons and becoming resurrected bodies. It's this beautiful image of what is waiting for us uh, at the end. Um, and so these, these resurrected bodies, but then we get this line, Ezekiel says, but there was no breath in them. And so God tells Ezekiel to prophesy over the breath and it says, and the breath came into them and they lived. And they stood on their feet in exceedingly great army. That same word for breath that Ezekiel uses is actually also used in Genesis 2-7, which most of us know, which is God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground. He makes a body. And then it says that he breathed into the nostrils of the man the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. This is the breath that is filling up bodies. Now that word breath, it's the same Hebrew word in both passages, and it can be translated breath. It can also be translated spirit. And so, what is the Spirit? The Spirit is what animates true life. Or as Charles Spurgeon said it in the quote earlier, it's what actuates, the Spirit that actuates you. It is what fills up life. That these bodies in both of these passages, are, they're, they're full bodies, but they're dead. And then the Spirit fills them, and they're, they're animated. They come to life. It's the breath of God which takes a fully functional body and brings it to life. The Spirit is what animates a true, godly human life. And so the fruit of the Spirit is not a list of attributes to attain to, but it's an outworking of the breath of the Spirit in a human life. And so how do you know if you're under the law or under Christ? How do you know if you're... Because this also makes sense of the distinction that is here, which is the work of the flesh. Paul says you're either under the work of the flesh or you're under the fruit of the Spirit. And this makes sense because work is labor. You, 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 you sum up your own strength to make it happen, but fruit grows. And fruit is a natural outworking of this breath that's filling up life. So how do you know if you're under the law of Christ? Here's a question. Are you an ornament or are you a fruit? Are your works ornaments or fruits? N.T. Wright is a theologian. He says that the work of the flesh are more like Christmas ornaments. You, you cut down a Christmas tree and you stick it in your house and you put ornaments on it. The tree's dead and the ornaments are empty plastic shells. Though you put them on to make it look good, to make it look alive, like it's having a fun time. But in reality, it's dead. The tree's dead, the ornaments are dead. But the fruit of the Spirit are like apples hanging off a tree. They're, they're an extension of the tree. They grow out of the tree as naturally as branches do, as naturally as, as leaves do. They grow off of it. They're rich. They're delicious. They're alive. They can produce more life. The seeds in them can produce more life. Um, the tree is filled with the breath of life, and so it produces fruit. So are you laboring under the short, shallow breaths of your own, of your, of your own breath, your own labor? Or are you trusting uh, in, in Christ and you're, and you're laboring under the deep, long breaths of the Spirit of God? And so Paul ends with a really practical test here. 
He says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Um, Conceit is the valuing of yourself above others. That if everyone's got a dollar value, you've got a couple bucks on them. Um, And so provoking and envying, they're actually both results of conceit. Conceit's valuing yourself too highly, and both envying and provoking come out of that. Provoking is someone pushing and prodding someone into a reaction because you believe, you believe yourself to be higher. You believe those kinds of reactions to be beneath you. You think, I, I understand people. I can control people. I can push and prod. I know exactly what I'm doing. If you, people who provoke know exactly what they're doing. Um, and it comes from a place of conceit, uh, uh, that you, you poke at people because you think you're smarter than them, or you're more in control of your emotions. You value yourself and your abilities above others. But envy also comes out of conceit. It also comes from a, a place of too high self-worth. It says, but it, but it has some bitterness with it. It says that something should belong to you, not just because you want it, but because you deserve it, that you should have something, that you, you deserve something. I should have that car or those clothes or that relationship because I deserve it, because I've worked for it. I've, you have no idea how hard I've worked for it. You have no idea how, how, how long I've labored um, and how, how, mu- how much I've been mistreated, and that's why I don't have all the things you have. I deserve that thing. It comes out of a sense of your own self-worth. And so they both come out of this. Um, and so one of, the Paul, one of the things Paul is saying is, so how do you know if you're living under the law or living under Christ? How do you know if, you're, if the law is your Lord, which means you're your Lord, or that the Lord is your Lord, that Christ is your Lord? How do you know? Well, if you're living under the law, you're conceited. And how do you know if you're conceited? You're poking and prodding or you're envying. So if you find yourself poking and provoking and envying, you're probably living under the law. You're living in conceit. Or have you put yourself back under the, have you put yourself back under the yoke of slavery by believing that you're worthy of meeting the law, of meeting its expectations, meeting its demands? Because if that's what you believe, then yeah, you poke at people and you envy because you believe I have deserved something or I am better than, and you're under the law. You're, you're, you're subtly believing that there's some part of your justification, some part of your goodness was yours, that you earned it. Um, I was in a, uh, a fellows program my senior year of college, which if you don't know what a fellows program is, it's you read a bunch of books and you have an internship and you learn about Christian vocation. Um, <clears throat> and so I was at JMU as my senior year as part-time student, full-time fellow. Um, and I was in a small group as well at, um, with InterVarsity Campus Ministry. And it was our senior year, so our, the leaders we'd gotten when we were freshmen, they'd moved on. And so someone from our small group was the leader. So someone my age was our leader. And I'd been in this fellows program for three long months, <laughs> which meant I'd read six whole books on theology. And I, and I had learned a lot of things that I had never, I had never heard. And in all seriousness, I, I, it was tremendous. I had learned more in those six books than I felt like I'd learned in six years. Um, but I, I felt awakened. I felt enlightened. I was like, oh my gosh, I know so much more than all these guys in my small group. And we're going through this thing in our small group on spiritual disciplines. And we're talking about journaling. And a few days before, I had heard my pastor quote C.S. Lewis about journaling and how C.S. Lewis thought it was all, you know, rubbish and um, that it was just kind of him reflecting on himself. And so, and then my pastor said something to the effect that he agreed. And I was like, oh, okay, great. I know all about journaling. <laughs> I know all about this theology. I know all about spiritual disciplines. And so I thought, let me drop this beautiful little nugget of truth on my small group leader so that everyone knows who the theologian in the room is. And so I did. 
and nothing bad happened. It didn't blow up. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't terrible. But I immediately remember feeling dirty and a little gross um, because I spoke out of a place of conceit. I provoked because I believed, and I can reflect back on this and say this is true, I believed that my theology made me a stronger, more equipped, more valuable, more righteous believer than my friend. I believe that it was my theology that saved me. It was my right thinking about God that saved me. It wasn't, it wasn't clinging to Christ. I, I was provoking because I had this, this understanding that it was me in my mind that was helping justify me before God. So how are we doing as a church, as a community? Are we provoking others because we have a high view of ourselves? Are we envying because we have a high view of ourselves? If, if you are, you're living as Lord of your own life. Christ is not your Lord, and you are a terrible taskmaster. You are a terrible slave owner for yourself. Um, let Christ be your Lord. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. And so this is the message, is that in Christ you are free. You're free indeed. You are, you are free from the law of sin. You're free for the law of love, and you're free by the Spirit. It, it works itself out in you, not because of anything you've done, but because you've been filled with the breath of the Spirit of God. And all of this is true because one man actually perfectly met the law. That Jesus had perfectly justified him, himself before God. He actually made it. He was the one man who made it. He, he, um, he completely justified himself by the law. He fulfilled the law and he met every single rule, every single law. He deserved no condemnation. He deserved nothing but eternal glory. And yet, he took on the punishment of the law as if he had failed it. As he, he, he met it perfectly, and he took on the punishment. Anyway, not because he deserved the punishment, but because we deserved the punishment. And simply by turning in faith, his righteousness is yours. His accomplishment of the law is your accomplishment of the law. His freedom is your freedom. His life is your life. And this is one of the things in the Bible that it says that you, it's not that you believe in Jesus and then you become a righteous person. It's actually, the Bible says you have alien righteousness, meaning that your righteousness, even when you come to Christ, is not yours. It is Christ's, and it is credited to you. And so it's not that you've been made righteous. It's that you cling more tightly to Christ, and his righteousness is credited to you. Even in faith, you are not made into a righteous person. Christ is your righteousness. And so we're all living under laws, whether it's a law that a church has given you or a law that you have made. It's probably some combination of the two. Um, you're, you are a slave trying to meet the requirements of the law. And so you'll never be free from the law until the moment that you say, I will never meet the requirements. I will never live up to the standard, but somebody has. And I'll put my faith in him. I'll put my trust, I'll put my life in his hands. So will you stop living under the law? Because there's freedom. There's freedom in Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not up to us to justify ourselves, God. Um, we can't do it. And um, God, we, we're sorry for the ways that we, that we uh, still try to cling on in this, in this kind of petty way to our own justification, that we hold on to the ways that we think that we can live up to the law, live up to expectations. And God, we're sorry for that. And we ask that um, you would rid us of, that you would free us from those desires, that we would cling fully to the truth that 
We cannot meet the law, but you can. That we can cling closely to you. And by doing that, God, that we would be free. We would be free from the law. We'd be free from expectation. We'd be free from the social pressure of, of having to live up. Um, God, that we would know that our only righteousness, our only beauty, it comes from you. It's not ours at all. So, God, would you help us? We need you. We need your spirit to fill us. We need, we need your breath to fill our lives so that we can... Um, so that we can be free. So God, I pray that over, our, over Spring Run, over all the world, God, that your breath would fill us and that we would, be, um, we would be saved through your breath. We pray all of this in your holy name. Amen.